That last verse on the screen, so powerful. Jesus said, I will build my church. He didn't say, I hope to build my church or I'd like to build my church. He didn't say, you build my church. He said, I will build my church. Well, these last six weeks, we've been working our way through Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And uh, you can have that open in front of you. Um, the latter part of verse 47 says, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Who builds the church? Jesus. Who adds to the number of the church? Jesus does. Well, this is the final installment in our Reset series. This is part six of six. And uh, so I'd like to do just kind of one final and uh, quick review of these things that this early church in Jerusalem devoted themselves to. And I want to do that because I believe that it is these very same things that we need to devote ourselves to to enthusiastically recommit and redevote uh, ourselves to in this really challenging and uh, unique season of ministry and life. And so the first thing that they devoted themselves to in this Jerusalem church was to taking seriously the words of Jesus. They devoted themselves, verse 42, to the apostles' teaching about Jesus, including the very words of Jesus. This was a church who, with just a beautiful simplicity, decided to take Jesus at his word. Kind of like that old hymn, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word." And so these believers said, well, here is what Jesus said. Let's just assume he meant what he said and let's just do that. It's a pretty good strategy. These believers knew God through faith in Christ. They were becoming more like Jesus as they devoted themselves to what Jesus said. And they were changing their world. They changed their world. And you know, we have an advantage that this church didn't. We have the Gospels. We have the New Testament. They had none of that. We can actually take the Bible and open up the four Gospels and see for ourselves the words of Jesus. In fact, it's easy. Some of us have them in red letters, the words of Jesus in, in, in red. I think we need to get better acquainted with the words of Jesus. Well, the second thing that this early church in Jerusalem devoted themselves to was to fellowship, to a Jesus-centered fellowship. They devoted themselves to Jesus at the center. That word fellowship is koinonia, comes from the root word koinos, which means common. So you could literally say that this early church devoted themselves to that which they held in common. And what they held in common was Jesus. Jesus was their fellowship. He was their koinonia. It was Jesus at the center that pulled them together into community. So let's be Jesus-centered. That sounds so obvious and simple, but really it's not. In fact, it was about 10 days ago or so, I was asked a really good question. And the question was this, why Jesus-centered? 
And, and where that question was coming from was kind of this idea that God is three in one, Father, uh, Son, and Spirit. And so why single out the Son? Why be Jesus-centered? Why not be Father-centered? Why not be Spirit-centered? Why Jesus-centered? And if you think about God the Father, no one can have any real sense of what God is like apart from Jesus. Yes, God has revealed himself through the things that he's made. He's revealed himself in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. He's revealed himself in the, in the very consciousness of humankind. We see that in Romans 1. And certainly God has revealed himself in Scripture. But if you listen to what John says, like in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 18, John writes these words, No one has seen God. No one. No one pretty much includes everyone. No one has seen God, including Moses, including David. No one has seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. You will never know what God is really like unless and until you look at Jesus. You'll never know the Father and know what he's really like. You'll have the cloudiest of images. You'll have the, the shadowiest of ideas of what God is like until you fix your gaze on Jesus. You'll never understand God the Father apart from Jesus. Jesus said no one comes to the Father except through him. And the, the role of the Holy Spirit, well, Jesus identifies what the role of the Spirit is in John 16, 14. He said, the Spirit glorifies me. The Spirit shines a light on Jesus. The Spirit um, glorifies Jesus. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit, the pneuma, the wind, the wind of God blows us in a Jesus direction. So it's Jesus who shows us the Father. And the Spirit shines a light on the Son. And so we are Jesus-centered. And there are other uh, churches that put other things at the center instead of Jesus. Other good things. Like I think I've told you before that I grew up in a um, ministry culture and went to Bible college in a ministry culture that described itself as Bible-centered. And we said that we followed the Bible. Now, the Bible is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. It's God's word. It's inspired. But God didn't simply toss us a book and say, good luck. No, he gave us his son, the living word. John 1.14, the word became flesh. And Jesus says that every page of the Bible is all about him. And so we don't follow the Bible, we follow Jesus. It's not the Bible at the center, it's Jesus at the center. We're not Bibleians, we're Christians. Jesus said in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so in saying that we are Jesus-centered, we're not in any way diminishing the value of the Bible. No, rather we're elevating the supremacy of Jesus in all things. 
You know, Paul in Colossians 1 talked about the, the, the centrality of Jesus. And in Colossians 1.18, he said of Jesus that in everything he might have the supremacy. Paul said in Colossians 2 verse 9 that it is in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So we love the Bible. We love the Bible. We read the Bible. We study the Bible. We preach the Bible. We memorize the Bible so that we can follow Jesus and be Jesus-centered. That is a key Anabaptist distinctive. With Jesus at the center, everything else can take its proper place. My wife likes to decorate, and uh, she informs me that no room can be said to be beautiful unless it has an identifiable center. You walk into a room, your eyes automatically should be drawn to the center, to the focal point. And when you can identify the center, well, then everything else falls into place. Once you identify the center, well, then you know where the couch goes and the chair goes and the vase goes and the artwork goes and, and so on. Without Jesus at the center, other good things become misshapen and imbalanced. But with Jesus at the center, everything else can take its proper place. Well, thirdly, this early church in Jerusalem was devoted to prayer. Acts 1.14 says they all joined together constantly in prayer. We noted that they prayed in faith. It was the very promises of God that formed the basis upon which they prayed in faith. This was a praying church, not merely a church that prayed, but a praying church. They believe that prayer changes things. And so they all joined together constantly in prayer. The fourth thing that we looked at about this church, they were devoted to generosity. This was a church that believed that everything that we are, everything that we have, everything that will ever be, all belongs to God. Not just 10%, 100%. He owns it all. We're managers. He's the owner. And this early church in Jerusalem recognized that. And we noted in Acts 4 that no one in this church claimed that any of their possessions was their own. They had possessions, but they didn't claim them as their own. They held them with open hands and recognize their possessions simply as vehicles to be used in the meeting of needs of other people in Jesus' name. They were radically generous. Why? Because they followed Jesus. And Jesus is radical. Jesus came to inaugurate an entirely upside-down and revolutionary kingdom. And this church in Jerusalem was all in. Well, last week, uh, we looked at the fifth thing that they devoted themselves to, and that was to worship. They worshiped Jesus from the heart with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, we read in Acts 2. Their hearts were full of thanksgiving, full of joy, full of gratitude, full of praise. And so when life bumped into them and jostled them, what spilled out of them was praise and gratitude and thankfulness and worship. It's like my coffee cup, although it has, doesn't have coffee, it's got water in it right now, but 
This cup is full of water. If you bang into me, what's going to spill out of this cup is water. If it were full of, full of coffee, what would spill out of it would be coffee. See, we spill out what we're filled with. If we're filled with bitterness, when life bangs out of, into us, what's going to spill out is bitterness. And here's this early church with hearts full of gratitude, joy, and thanksgiving. And that's what spilled out of them. Well, the thing that we want to look at today, the sixth and the final thing, we want to notice that they were devoted to sharing the good news of Jesus. We noted already the latter part of verse 47, which says the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So here's this early church. They're learning the words of Jesus. They're uh, fellowshipping, they're praying, they're giving, they're worshiping, and all of that does not come at the expense of them sharing the good news message of Jesus. One evidence that a church is a spirit-filled church is that a church will have a missionary mindset. A spirit-filled church will have a missionary mindset. In fact, Go back uh, to Acts chapter 1 and look at verse 8. Acts 1 and 8. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit. The Spirit is poured out so that we will be empowered as witnesses. A church cannot claim to be a spirit-filled church if they have an insider, um, inward focus. A spirit-filled church is a missionary-minded church. The Holy Spirit is a missionary-minded spirit. And I know that when we use the word missionary, we, we so often just automatically think overseas, like missionaries are people who are overseas. And we often think of you know, of our church. We were engaged in missions when we send money overseas, like to Haiti or to Mexico or to Cuba or Liberia, or when we send teams for short-term uh, projects uh, overseas, we think of that as our involvement in missions. But what we're talking about most fundamentally here is this, that as soon as this, in, uh, as soon as this online service is over, you are a missionary. Some of you are missionaries in your own home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in the office, in the factory, in the classroom, in the school. Missionaries in the service clubs that you participate in. You see, these Jesus followers of this Jerusalem church, if you look at Acts 1-8 again, they are first called to be witnesses where? In Jerusalem. Why in Jerusalem? Because that's where they are. This is the Jerusalem church. They're empowered by the Spirit to be witnesses, first of all, in Jerusalem with the people who are in proximity to them, the people that they are connected to. Here I am sitting in our church building in Sobel Beach. What is our Jerusalem? Well, our Jerusalem here is Sobel Beach. What's your Jerusalem? It's wherever you are in fact, you can make a case in this day that um, because we're so, it's such a digital world and we're so connected that you could actually have meaningful closeness and connection to somebody who's across the world thanks to things like 
Facebook or um, FaceTime and uh, Zoom and, and those kinds of things. But really what we're talking about is, our, is the people right around us. Notice the next thing. Witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea. Well, Judea was the area surrounding Jerusalem. So here I am again, sitting in Sobel Beach. What's our Judea? Well, um, Oliphant, Wyerton, Clavering, Hepworth, Shallow Lake, Owen Sound, Allenford, Terra, Southampton, Port Elgin, the surrounding area. Jesus says you'll be witnesses starting right where you are in Jerusalem and in Judea, the surrounding area. And then notice this, Jesus gets weirdly specific in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. Samaria was an area, an adjoining area north of Jerusalem. And the Jews did not go there because they had a very troubled history with the Samaritans. And Samaria, even though it was not far geographically, it felt foreign to them. The Jews held a lot of prejudice against the Samaritans. So again, here I am sitting in Sobel Beach, what is our Samaria? Is there an area, are there areas that are not far geographically, but areas where there are people with whom we have a troubled history, where we have prejudice, areas not far geographically and yet feel kind of foreign to us. Could I suggest that maybe the first nations communities to the north and the south of us a people with whom we have troubled history, with whom we have prejudice, areas that feel kind of foreign to us. What does Jesus say? You will be my witnesses in Samaria. You know, our, our slogan as a church is that we will be a beacon of hope on the shores of Lake Huron. Well, there's two large First Nations communities on the shores of Lake Huron. Is that the Samaria that Jesus is calling us to be witnesses empowered by the Spirit? And to the ends of the earth as well. And, I, and um, I've gone on long enough in that. Let me just say this, that these early Jesus followers, um, sharing the message of Jesus, they experienced very dramatic growth. If you go back to chapter one and verse 15, um, you find out that there were uh, a group numbering about 120. So there's about 120 in, uh, in chapter one, verse 15. But then just a few days later, if you go over to chapter two and find verse 41, uh, Peter has just preached a sermon. A bunch of people respond to that. Well, look at verse 41. It says about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So now you've got like 3,120. This group has experienced a rate of growth 26 times their original size in just a few days. And then if you go over to chapter 4, look at verse 4. And even though this is a context of 
uh, with some persecution in it, to be sure, because Peter and John have been arrested. They've been thrown in jail. They're threatened. Nevertheless, what do we read in verse 4? Many heard the message, believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. And then if you, uh, so, so, so we've got, you know, 120 to 3,000 to 5,000. Now go over to chapter 5 and look at verse 14. Um, and by this point, it's like Dr. Luke, who is the author of Acts, he's, he's lost the ability to, to kind of put numbers on this. It says, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So you've got this incredible explosion of growth. You've got these Jesus followers in this Jerusalem church who just kind of can't help themselves but telling this good news message of Jesus who had changed their life. And as a result, the Lord is adding daily to their number those who are being saved. I want to just pause on that phrase just for a moment, the Lord added to their number. Because that's an important thing to get straight. Who adds to the church? Jesus does. Who does he add? Those who are being saved. Who does the saving? Jesus does. He doesn't add them without saving them. He doesn't save them without adding them. Jesus adds to the church. I will build my church, said Jesus. He is the head of the church. He's the one who adds to the church. Now, we know that he does this through means. In this case, he's doing this through a, a, um, a learning, uh, fellowshipping, praying, giving, worshiping, sharing people. Uh, they're witnessing, and, and as a result of all of that, Jesus is adding people to this community of faith. Now, it's, it's possible. Um, some of you might be thinking back to some things I said last week, because last week I talked about, I talked a little bit about crowds and about crowd size and talked about what I think for many of us is kind of an obsession with crowd size. Acknowledge that nowhere are we called to make a crowd. We are called to make disciples. We can make a crowd, but the fact that we make a crowd really says nothing about whether or not we're really experiencing any missional success in terms of disciple making. Nothing wrong with crowds. But crowds are no indication necessarily of any missional success. You can have a circus and make a crowd. doesn't necessarily mean you're being successful in a missional sense in terms of making disciples. And so we want to be careful not to fall into the trap of using numerical growth as some kind of a measurement of, uh, of missional success. And then you might think, well, it sounds like today you're kind of highlighting numerical growth. You know, 120 to 3,000 to 5,000, and then there's so many you can't count. So which is it? right? Do we downplay numerical growth or do we highlight and celebrate numerical growth? Let me uh, clarify this because this is really important. The, the kind of numerical growth that I am excited about and joyful about and want to highlight at every possible opportunity is the kind of growth that comes as a result of Jesus adding to his church. And the kind of numerical preoccupation that I want to downplay 
is the kind of numerical growth that says more about man than it does about God. You see, we can add to the crowd, but only Jesus can add to the church. We can add to the crowd, and we should, but only Jesus can add to the church. We can add to the crowd, and we should. You know, you read through the Gospels, and there's, there's a couple of phrases that you will read uh, repeatedly. And they have to do with this thing of, um, of evangelism and sharing the good news of Jesus. One phrase is, go and tell. And the other phrase is, come and see. And we need to do both. We need to go and tell, but we also need to invite people to come and see. Come in and be with us and to be welcoming uh, to them. And we need to do both. So we can add to the crowd, and we should. But crowd size is no indication of missional success. We can add to the crowd, but only Jesus can add to the church. Let's, um, let's go over a couple of books to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll end up closing here. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and what I want us to see in this chapter is just to kind of uh, further emphasize the fact that it's Jesus who builds his church. He does use us in the process as servants, but he is the one who builds his church. He's the one who adds to the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, actually, if you go to the tail end of verse 3, 1 Corinthians 3, 3, Paul asks kind of a weird question here. He says, are you not acting like mere men? And in verse 4, you know, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? And so Paul is talking about these Corinthian believers as they line up behind uh, celebrity pastors. They're lining up behind their favorite human leader. In verse 5, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Paul and Apollos, you, me, we till the soil, we plant the seed, we water it, but Jesus brings it to life. Jesus makes it grow. Jesus produces the harvest. We're servants as uh, as Paul points out in this passage, Jesus builds his church. Jesus adds to the church those he saves. He doesn't add them without saving them. He doesn't save them without adding them. He does it. Wouldn't it be horrible if that were up to you? Wouldn't it be a horrible burden to bear if Jesus said, you build my church, you add to the church? Can you imagine? The weight of that, like you go to bed at night and you wake up in the morning and, and, and you have this realization again anew in the morning, oh my goodness, today it's up to me to add to the church. What an incredible burden that would be. And what would your converts look like? Like, a, can you imagine a whole church full of people just like you? <laughs> or worse, just like me? You talk about a dysfunctional church. 
So it's Jesus who grows his church. He adds to the church those who are being saved. And it's important for us to acknowledge that because it, it helps us see our role as servants. Because like you, I cannot do anything to change anybody's heart. I cannot, I cannot open anybody's eyes to make them see the light of the glorious gospel. I cannot open anybody's ears to make them hear the call of the Spirit to kneel at the cross. I can't do any of that. That's what Jesus does. It's important to affirm that Jesus does the adding. He does the growing. So again, who, um, who did the adding? Jesus. Who did he add? Those who were being saved. When were they being added? Well, we saw every day. Every day this was happening. And so this, this church in Jerusalem, you know, for them, evangelism wasn't, um, wasn't a program. It wasn't something that happened weekly. It wasn't a, a quarterly thing. It wasn't sporadic. It was just every day. Here's this group of people learning, fellowshipping, praying, giving, worshiping, sharing every day. And people would ask them why. What has changed about you? What makes you tick? Why do you go every day to the temple at nine o'clock? Why did I see you with all of your friends down at the river and you were dunking each other? What was that about? Why do you say that Jesus is Lord. Why don't you say that Caesar's Lord like everybody else does? Do you really believe that Jesus is alive? And so they would just be asked questions in the workplace, in the marketplace, every day, and they would shine a light on Jesus. Uh, in last week's quotes, there was one by A.W. Tozer that I like, and I'll kind of paraphrase it, but he said, you go to church once a week, nobody pays attention. But you worship seven days a week and you become strange. You become questionable. You are now living a life worth questioning. Michael Frost, a missiologist, coined that phrase, live a questionable life. Live a life worth questioning. And when people do question you, be quick to point to Jesus. You know, it's 1 Peter 3.15, where Peter says, you need to always be ready to give an answer to anybody who asks you a reason for your hope and to do it with gentleness and with respect. Maybe today you've listened to this talk about evangelism, about pointing to Jesus, about Jesus saving. And maybe you've sensed something stirring inside of you. Maybe sensing a need to give your life to Jesus, to be saved, to experience his grace and his saving power in your life. If you feel today like today is your day, to say yes to Jesus. I'm just gonna pray a little prayer. And um, there's nothing magical about this prayer at all. I'm just gonna pray it 
And if, if your heart, if something's stirring in your heart, if the Spirit is kind of leading you to say yes to Jesus, to kneel at the cross and accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you can just, you can just pray along with me in your heart. Heavenly Father, you are God. You are the rightful owner of all that I have and all that I am. But I confess that I have not lived for you. I'm a sinner. I confess it. And I need your mercy, Jesus. Jesus, I believe that you died for me on the cross. You bore my sin. And so I ask you, Lord Jesus, to come into my life to forgive my sin, to help me turn and to live for you. I need your love. I need your life. Lord Jesus, live in me and live through me. I surrender myself and all my life over to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer along with me, that's awesome. It's a little bit like saying I do in a wedding ceremony. It's the starting point. It's the beginning of a relationship. And you know what? I would love to hear from you. I'll tell you what, if you would, if you've said yes to Jesus today, would you shoot me an email? My email is chris at sobelchurch.ca. It's private. I'm the only one who sees it. If you've said yes to Jesus, I'd love to hear from you because I'd, I'd love to just encourage you and to, and to pray for you as well. Well, thus ends our Reset series. And uh, next week is going to be great because Ken is going to be sharing on the theme of baptism. So be sure to, uh, to uh, track along with us next Sunday as Ken talks about baptism. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us today. See you soon.